Welcome to Still Becoming, a podcast about how it's never too late to become more free, more yourself, or try something new. I'm Monica DiCristina, a wife, mother, and practicing psychotherapist. Through my own journey, starting with my struggles with anxiety years ago, that led to my professional work as a therapist now, I am fascinated with the process of how we become who we are. We will hear from people telling their stories of becoming, of unbecoming, and overcoming, as well as from experts helping us learn about our own process in the world. We are not designed to stay the same. Our stories are still being written. We are all still becoming. so excited and so honored to have therapist and writer Tiffany Rogers on the Still Becoming podcast today. In the strange world that is social media, making real life connections like the one I've gotten to make with Tiffany make it totally worth it. Tiffany describes for us why she became a therapist and her journey to becoming one, the long version of the story, and you're not going to want to miss it. Tiffany also describes her experience of being a black woman in this country. We talk about microaggressions, covert racism, and the reality of racial trauma. We also talk about rest and about joy. Tiffany describes the idea of creating a safe space for black people to tell their stories. I know that the Still Becoming podcast audience is a diverse audience. And so my hope is that as you listen to this conversation today, if you have overlaps in your story with some of what Tiffany describes as being a black person in this country, my hope is that you would feel that safe space today. If you don't have overlap with Tiffany's story and you haven't had similar experiences, my hope is that you would create that safe space and that you would listen. I honestly didn't want this conversation to end. I could have talked to Tiffany all day. She is so incredibly wise, so incredibly insightful. I think that you will learn a lot as you listen to what she shares today. And I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Well, Tiffany, I'm so grateful and glad to have you on the Still Becoming podcast this month. And as I have messaged you before, um, your writing has stopped me in my tracks. Um, And I'm so grateful you take the time just to share about your own experience as a black woman and as a therapist in the United States. And I can't wait to dive into this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, we've been talking back and forth on social media. And I love that while we've not met in person, um, we do have a real connection that we've been fostering online. And I'm really, really grateful for that. I'm a big fan of your work as well. And so I'm honored to be here and to have the opportunity to share with you and your listeners today. Thank you. And I have loved connecting with you too. Um, And I'm wondering if you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm Tiffany Rogers. I'm a therapist um, based in Chicago. I'm actually very new to the mental health profession as I just finished my graduate degree in clinical mental health counseling um, at Northwestern a few months ago. 
And I now work with individual adult clients in a private practice setting. Um, I'm really passionate about supporting people with diverse backgrounds and lived experiences, especially black and brown clients, Um, passionate about advocating for social justice and working to help people heal from the impact of traumatic histories. And, you know, I'd love to hear, Tiffany, why you became a therapist. It's it's such a a compelling work that you're doing. Um, And I had mentioned to you this this to you before that I always love hearing, you know, what brought you to this field and also your journey to becoming a therapist? Yeah, I I love the question. Um, I realized as I was reflecting on this that I typically only share the very high level answer. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So if you'll allow me, I'll share, I'll share a little bit more because I think it feels really relevant to share more today, given our current cultural climate. Yeah. Um, So I, you know, probably like most therapists, have always been really curious about people and about the human experience. Um, I've always been really drawn to stories and deep, meaningful conversations. I'm the kind of person who wants to always skip the small talk and just (laughs) get into something real. (laughs) Uh Um, And so when I was really young, I kind of daydreamed about becoming a talk show host. And, um, you know, I've also been writing for as long as I can remember. Um, in different forms, of course. And so I thought along the way, maybe I would become a journalist and interview celebrities and write, you know, these beautiful (laughs) feature stories. And as I got older, and I learned more, I realized psychology was a field that really encompassed so much of what I was drawn to. And when I went to college, I decided I wanted to become a psychologist. And I spent my first two years of undergrad as a psychology major. And then you know, as time went on, and I got closer to really getting into the meat of that degree and that work, I started to imagine my future and the journey that was ahead in terms of my schooling and training. And I started to get really overwhelmed. Yeah, I started to wonder about how we'd make it through what was essentially another, you know, seven years of schooling. (laughs) Psychologists Mm -hmm. have to go through lots of training and education. And I, I just felt really um, insecure about how I would navigate such unfamiliar environments. And I had always been really good at school. And so it wasn't so much the academic requirements that bothered me. Um, but I just didn't know if, if what I wanted and what I was dreaming about was possible for me as a Black girl. I didn't know of any Black psychologists or even any Black mental health professionals at the time. Um, during my, you know, undergrad, none of my teachers were black. And so it felt like just a brand new world. And I was also at the time navigating some really big personal issues. And I didn't know if I would ever feel emotionally healthy or whole enough to actually help other people in the way that I wanted to. My parents divorced when I was in high school. And so I moved across the country with my mom and To be honest, it took me quite a while to recover from that really big shift in the life of my family. And, you know, so much of adulthood is about navigating and exploring new, you know, possibilities and taking risk. But when you don't feel safe and secure, um, it's really hard to do that. And so I was really afraid that my desire to shake things up for myself was going to shake things up too much for my family at the time that was still kind of reeling from a big change. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I made the decision at that time to 
pull back and do something that felt much safer. And so I eventually pursued a career in media, um, settling in public relations, which, you know, was safe enough. It was like some of the things that I liked and enjoyed and, and incorporated writing and, and working with people. Um, but it was, you know, obviously the safe choice for me. And I can tell you from the moment that I changed my major and started doing these classes in PR, I hated it. <laughs> I really, you know, I was miserable right from the get-go. I knew it wasn't the right fit for me, um, but it was safe. You know, I knew that I would be done with school soon. I could get a job. I could, you know, I, I could just imagine very easily what my next few steps would look like. So I actually spent 10 years in that field and I was, you know, absolutely miserable mm -hmm. <laughs> the majority of the 10 years, um, just completely checked out emotionally. Um, but, you know, I did enough to get good jobs and make friends and make money. Um, and so I stayed with it until I just couldn't anymore. And when I turned 30, I had a real period of introspection where I just began to get really curious about why I was continuing to live so far out of alignment with what felt really true and right for me. And I got curious about why this career in mental health hadn't felt possible before. And, you know, I think this is, you know, a, a life transition thing where you start to think about what am I going to need to really feel satisfied with my choices and with my work and how I spend my time. And so I decided just to kind of scrap my plan. I had a really good job at the time. Um, but I decided, you know, that I was going to start over. And to be honest, I still didn't know what my future was going to look like as a mental health professional. But I really believed that it was worth the risk to find out. And, you know, of course, 10 years later, there was um, many more examples of people who look like me doing the kind of work I was really interested in. Um, and one of the things that I found in my time in corporate America was that I really loved working one on one with people. Um, in many of my roles, I acted as a liaison or kind of a bridge between the organizations I worked with and the public. And I really loved that, you know, the work of understanding people's needs and answering their questions and helping them to feel heard and represented. And so that's something that I, you know, continue to do. And that fuels me as a therapist, as an advocate for my clients. Tiffany, I mean, thank you for sharing the maybe the longer version yeah. <laughs> of, of that. I mean, it's it's so powerful and it's so moving. And, you know, the reality that there were not examples that that it was hard. Tell me if I'm getting this right, that it was hard to imagine because you weren't seeing people that were doing that. You weren't That's seeing absolutely it. black yeah. psychologists or therapists. And how often that might happen to brilliant young college girls like yourself that are imagining their future and are not seeing an example or were not. Yeah. I mean, I think representation is such a huge um, thing that allows us to dream bigger and to yeah. imagine something um, that maybe we couldn't conceptualize before. And so, you know, I'll be honest, I'm still always very struck and sometimes moved to tears when I see Black women in positions that inspire me. And of course, social media now um, has evolved a lot. So it's easier to kind of have access to that. But when you grow up, you know, like I did in a small town and you don't see that, it's like, yeah, is that possible? You know, 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and social media has, you know, I would imagine changed a lot of our access to just seeing who is doing what, but that wasn't around 10 years ago. I mean, or maybe it, maybe it was, I wasn't on. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, maybe, but yeah. it's it certainly what isn't, uh, wasn't what it is now, you know, yes. the ease yeah. and the access. Um, and I find that a lot of people are really open to connecting and sharing and that, you know, that's so important for, minorities, especially as they navigate these big life transitions and make big decisions about their future. And I wonder, you know, if you if you wouldn't mind a follow up question about Mm -hmm. this, what did it feel like when you decided to pursue your degree at Northwestern when you said, you know what, that this this whatever wordings you might use, you know, we all use different wordings, this purpose, this Mm -hmm. calling this um, dream, I am going to do it. What did, what did it feel like to, to choose that again, after going through, you know, the grief of the divorce in your family and, you know, living in a, a, a successful but unsatisfying PR career? What did that feel like? It was both terrifying and exciting. And I think there are many times that I still questioned and doubt, doubted, you know, my own abilities. And to be honest, I was kind of shocked that I got in. <laughs> um, I did a lot of research and was trying to figure out what, you know, what I wanted to do. And my husband really encouraged me to, a lot to kind of stop playing it safe. And so mm. Northwestern for me was like the least safe choice that I could make. Um, and so I threw all my eggs in one basket and just decided, you know, I, I love that you use the words purpose and calling because that is how I describe it for myself. It does feel like a calling. It does feel like stepping into, um, another dimension of my purpose. And it was absolutely terrifying. And all along the way I doubted myself, but I also just believed like, if this is what I'm supposed to be doing, the right doors will open. Mm, Yeah. And I think, you know, I've had to really um, stop regretting what I thought was lost time. I got into um, my program and I loved it so much and I felt so energized and more alive than I'd felt in 10 years. Um, And so, of course, there are parts of me that thought, like, gosh, if I had only done this before, you know, if I had only made this choice before, if only someone would have, you know, encouraged me or helped me. But as much as I had those thoughts, I also have many times now where I think, gosh, like I couldn't have done what I'm doing when mm. I was in my 20s. Yes. I just couldn't have, you know, I wasn't ready for it. And that's not to say that people in their 20s can't do it. I know many of them who are doing it and thriving. But for me and my journey, I had to go through all the things I went through to arrive to this place with confidence and assuredness of the fact that I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And the depth of the wisdom that you have to bring, you know, spending 10 years working in another field, I think is is unparalleled. And I think that's something that we often um, don't talk about enough in mental health is that, you know, we bring our whole self, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to that work and your whole self brings so much wisdom, so much. Again, there's nothing wrong with going straight into graduate school, but but there is something really special about that whole, you know, package of of wisdom that you bring with you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. We we use ourselves. You know, we are the greatest tool in the therapy room, and 
we learn a lot in school, but um, a lot of what I talk about with my clients, no one could have prepared me for that. It was life experience, you know, and and knowing what it is to feel, to just feel kind of in disarray, you know, emotionally and to struggle and to hurt. Um, And so I'm glad that I had those really painful experiences. I think they give me a lot more compassion um, for my clients. Well, we got to chat um, before this recording, and one of the things that you brought up was creating a safe space, and a safe space in particular for Black people to tell their story, to be heard. Um, and so can we start at with that powerful idea of creating a safe space? And, you know, if you could expand on that and, and you know, we'll just start there. I'll stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, as we have these really big, important conversations and as I reflect on my own experience as a black woman in America and as a therapist, you know, we all need safe spaces where we can just be, you know, and that, that goes for everyone, no matter how you identify where we are free from the pressure to perform and to prove ourselves and to hold it all together. And unfortunately, those spaces are so few for Black people. And when I think about racial trauma and how to begin healing racial trauma, I think about the armor that we as Black people have to put up to protect ourselves, um, physically, emotionally, mentally, And I think we have to wear that armor so often that it really becomes a part of our identity. It's not the truest version of who we are, but it's this persona really born of necessity that we craft for our survival. And so I've been thinking about where can we and how can we begin to unravel that to really find spaces where we don't have to protect ourselves, where we don't have to perform, where we don't have to prove ourselves. And honestly, most of us only find those spaces with each other, you know, in our own communities, in our mm-hmm. homes, and in our friend groups. But as a mental health professional, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, especially as, you know, people are listening and people are paying attention and people want to, um, I think, want to want to be a part of relationships and community that can be healing. And so I'm thinking about how can we create more safe spaces, more support, which is, you know, such a critical aspect of healing. You know, often our workplaces aren't safe. Our neighborhoods aren't safe. Sometimes our churches aren't even safe. And I'm not just talking, of course, about physical safety, which has to come first, but I'm talking about emotional safety and psychological safety. And one of the things I mentioned to you that I've really just kind of been chewing on is this idea that all forms of oppression are relational. Mm. And so we're talking a lot right now about systemic racism. And I think these conversations around what kinds of things need to change um, to ensure that Black people have more equitable experiences are so important. And I think it's also important to understand that in addition to our individual and collective experiences with systemic racism, we all have relationships in our lives as Black people where we have to shrink ourselves to be safe. And we learn to be quiet, to try to be accepted in a world that's never accepted the fullness of who we are as Black people. You know, we learn to hold our tongues, um, even at the expense of our own dignity and our humanity. And as therapists, you know, we're always working to create an environment and a relationship 
that allows a person to expand Mm, as opposed to shrink. Yes. But so much of that work includes really trying to understand the kinds of spaces and the kinds of experiences that crush us and teach us it's safer to stay small. I don't have answers on this, (laughs) but I'm just really thinking a lot and trying to be intentional in creating safe spaces where we can be fully seen and heard and held as humans with the full range of experiences and emotions just like everyone else. I read an article a while ago and the title has always stayed with me and it was, Where Do Black Women Go to Cry? Mm. And that just was like a dagger to my heart because I think Mm -hmm. Black women sometimes carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. And I talk about this a lot with friends and even with my husband of like, even if I wanted to fall apart, where would I? Yeah. Even if I needed to have an experience that was emotional and, you know, supercharged, where could I do that safely? Um, Where can we be upset? Where can we ask hard questions without others being threatened? And I think there are so many things that are really important for safety. Um, Of course, representation is important, like we talked about. Language is important. Mm -hmm. Um, Openness and curiosity about one's lived experiences and understanding the systems that surround us and how we're impacted by them. But, you know, we are evaluating our safety and relationships um, without any of that happening, right? Like this, all of this happens in like nanoseconds. Absolutely. (laughs) it's, It's unconscious. It's happening on a neurobiological level where we're, we're just checking, you know, how do we feel in another person's presence? And so I think these conversations about um, covert racism really, really point us to some important work in terms of exploring and understanding how that affects us, even when it's not being expressly and explicitly discussed. Like there's a feeling when you're not safe and there's a feeling when you are safe. Right. Yeah. And you can read that. And I, I love that you brought in the neurobiological that, that we are in, like you said, in nanoseconds, mm-hmm. reading safety. And as a, as a black person, you're reading safety. Tell me if I'm getting this wrong in those nanoseconds. And that's true for all of us. Right. But yeah. I think the, the point I'm really trying to make is that where other people may feel safe more often, I think we feel safe less often. Yes, right? absolutely. It's more of a really um, unique experience to walk into a room and immediately feel safe. And it's a privileged experience. It's that's, that's some white privilege to walk into a room and not be scanning for safety. It is. Yeah. Can we um, add on to this? You know, one of our questions we we're going to talk about is the mental load. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm skipping us a little bit out of order, but it, but it, it relates so much to this, um, uh, of being a black person in this country. And you said like walking into a room or, or walking out of your home in the morning, right. Um, from literal life and death danger mm-hmm. to this covert, um, racism to these microaggressions and, your words were so powerful. This, tell me if I got this right, um, the um, relational oppression. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's so much we carry every day and it's in every moment. You know, that's the thing that's really, it's really hard to think about if I'm honest. You know, it's from the, from the moment we get up to the time we go to bed, things that most white people probably don't stress about. 
You know, for example, um, I have a bit of anxiety when I drive to work every day. I'm thinking, will I be pulled over? And if I do, will I be safe? What if I get a flat tire? If I call for help again, will I be safe? You know, um, in the workplace, there is that constant pressure to perform, to prove ourselves, our worth, our competence. That's every day. And then if we have children, we worry about not just the safety of our children, but will they be treated fairly? Will they be given the opportunities they're deserving of? I don't have children yet, but I worry about having black children. There's grief in knowing that I won't be able to protect them from a world that despises blackness. Yeah, I'm married to a black man. And anytime he's not in my presence, I'm worrying about his safety. I can't rest when he's not at home. Not because I worry about being alone, but because I worry about him being safe. You know, I mean, this is like any time of day, I, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, I think it's important to think about this, that, mm-hmm. you know, my husband leaves home and I'm, I'm, we have a, you know, track your location kind of thing on our phones. And I'm, I'm watching him move throughout the city because I'm concerned that he will be in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. Things like when I go shopping and I feel eyes on me as I move about the store. These are actual everyday experiences, you know? Um, When I make large purchases and there's these extra qualifying questions, right? The worry and and new friendships about whether or not I can bring my full self and the the complexity of my experiences. Mm. And so all of this on top of all the things we all deal with on a right. daily basis. Right. On top of just being an, uh, an adult and working and right. you know, paying the bills. This is a constant. Absolutely. It's a lot. It really is a lot. It is a lot. I'm wondering if we can talk about um, the trauma mm-hmm. also of being black in America that you wrote. Um, being black in America is traumatic. Yeah. You know, words that are not often discussed enough in mental health um, and certainly not by white clinicians are racial trauma, race-based traumatic stress, yeah. intergenerational trauma, or, or I've heard it called historical trauma. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about this in, you know, in addition to this constant mental load of just a daily task, like going to the store? Yeah there's also the trauma of, you know, as we're watching the news, the trauma of seeing black people, you know, the videos that are circulated. Tell me your thoughts as, as a black woman and as a therapist um, about this type of trauma. And maybe, maybe we need to define trauma too for people that are not, you know, mental health professionals, but um Tell me your thoughts. You know, I think it's really important to name it trauma. Yes. Because it is. Yes, it is. I think that as clinicians, certainly we should have this lens, but also just as humans, right? Like Agreed. 110%. This is trauma that Black people are going through living in America. Every day. Yeah, every day. And I, I, I will define trauma as I see it, but I think it's important to recognize that trauma in so many ways changes us in many ways. It also shrinks our capacity in lots of different ways. And so when I think about trauma, um, 
I think about it as any experience that really overwhelms a person's ability to cope. And so often we think about the really big things like abuse and neglect, which are certainly, you know, traumatic experiences, but trauma is also those experiences that may seem less damaging, but still cause extreme distress and change us in such profound ways. So, you know, things like living in a chaotic home environment or being bullied or even things like not being affirmed or cared for, you know, um, those can all be traumatic experiences that shape us and change the way that we relate to ourselves and to other people. And so when we think about racial trauma, gosh, there are so many traumatic experiences that come with being a Black person in America. And, you know, I can share just a bit about my own experience. Um, you know, unfortunately, my stories are, are probably not much different than other people's stories. I think that we all have very similar stories in terms of the kinds of racial trauma that we experience on a daily basis. Um, but, you know, I can remember, I grew up in a predominantly white town. And I remember I was in first grade when I was first called the N-word on the playground, playing Foursquare with a group of white kids. And I remember the shame that I felt in that moment. Of course, not being able to name it as such, but now I know that feeling was shame. And it's as if I had done something to deserve that hatred. I didn't even tell my parents about it. I just kind of swallowed all the feelings that came with that and, and kept going. And... I think that's important to note too, that like with all these experiences, for the most part, we just keep going. You know, these are things that we are not really taught how to respond to. And I don't know if that's because we want to believe that we're beyond that, you know, that surely our children won't experience that. But I think deep down, we all, we all know better. You know, Um, I played sports growing up and I remember the conversations about my hair, you know, Mm. My white teammates were shocked that my hair grew, that it was long, that it moved. I remember being accused um, of cheating by a white teacher in elementary school who had no accusations for my white peers. I remember the ways I had to work so hard just to be acknowledged even in elementary school, you know, growing up in all white environments. And I remember in high school when I was called pretty for a black girl. You know, something I've heard variations of over and over again, again, even in adulthood. And people really believe that was a compliment. (laughs) So then I'm the jerk if I say anything other than thank you, right? You see how that that makes us shrink? I absolutely do. Yep. And, you know, I can count on one hand the number of Black teachers I've had. And I have a master's degree. Yeah. It's a lot of school to not... Yeah, that, that issue of representation... And I'm sure we don't even have time to kind of dive into the experiences I had in the workplace, which were some of the most damaging experiences I've ever had. But, you know, things like being invited into meetings just because I was black so the executives could save face Hmm. or being photographed for public, you know, ads. Just because. Just because I was the black girl in the room, you know, arriving to public events or meetings with my white bosses and my white team and being completely ignored. And unacknowledged while people praise the projects that I was such a significant contributor on. So we're talking about, you know, this dehumanization that happens for Black people 
which is such a constant part of our experience. And, you know, what's what's hard, I think, for a lot of people is that these experiences with microaggressions especially can be really confusing for the people who are experiencing it, right? So there's that sense of, of shame, there's confusion, and, you know, also this fear that if we bring it up, we're going to be rocking the boat or we're going to be out of line. And so when we think about trauma just in general, think about how damaging it is to just swallow it and to never let it out. Yes. That's what we're doing though, right? For lots of reasons, because we don't understand it, because we're confused, because we feel this undue sense of shame. Because the the um, person, you know, with that behavior, who's sending that, you know, covert racism will not receive mm-hmm. the feedback, mm-hmm. right? Right. And, you know, I think it's also important to note, like some of these experiences that I've had with people, some of these are people I really liked, people I loved, people that I've walked with as friends. And in many cases, people aren't intending to hurt us or harm us. That's what's so damaging, though, because until you're curious about other people's experiences, until you're curious about how they move through the world and how it might be different than how you move through the world, you can say really hurtful and harmful things without ever intending to. And one of the things I was speaking to as I've been writing about this over the past few days is like, I'm sure that my friends (laughs) have seen a new side of me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just that this trauma and this pain cannot be held in forever. Just like any trauma or pain, you know, you hit uh, a boiling point where it just begins to spill out and bubble over. And I think with all that we're seeing, we've kind of hit, we've hit the tipping point. As sad as I am about everything that's happening and just devastated, I'm also feeling really grateful that people are finally paying attention. For so long, it's felt like we've been shouting, screaming, and no one's listening. And as, as uncomfortable as I know it is for, for all kinds of people, um, I'm glad that, that people are paying attention. And, you know, the um, privilege to not pay attention is one of the things we were going to talk about, too, is that, you know, you wrote, if you're able to look away, mm-hmm. to carry on, please know that that is a privilege. Or to not have been having this conversation your whole life yeah. is a privilege, right? That this has been a, this is a constant part of being a Black person in America. Yeah, it really is, you know, and I'll be really honest, you know, there's part of me that's kind of grappling with a bit of grief as the news cycle changes, as people begin to shift their attention, as people recognize how hard this work is going to be. Yes. How, you know, intense emotionally it is and will continue to be. And I am quick to acknowledge that it's really difficult to stay engaged in a process that's painful and that's challenging and that's difficult. And I think it's hard for all of us in different ways, but I'm not able to check out. That mental load we talked about, that's my reality every single day. And so I get why people want to get back to business as usual, but this is business as usual for Black people. And, you know, I I hope people really recognize and understand that this truly is a long game. 
you have to find a way to brace yourself for the the road ahead, which is long, you know, and it's going to be uncomfortable. And I think now is the time to learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, you know, yes, that's something I talk with clients about all the time that like, if you, if you want to do work on yourself, if you want to change things, if you want to heal, you have to get comfortable with being really uncomfortable. Yes. That's the only way forward. And so, you know, as, as a culture, we've ignored this for far too long. And yeah, we're angry. You know, we are devastated. We're skeptical. Uh, understandably. You know, rightfully so. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really finding myself um, feeling frustrated with, with what I'm seeing in terms of some people rushing to silence the emotion that comes along with this. Yeah. I saw someone say the other day, a mental health therapist, something to the effect of the greatest way for us to um, fight for justice is with love, not with anger. Oh, God. And it, <laughs> it was, it, it infuriated me. Yeah. And I think I've seen a lot more of that than I, than I would have liked to. And what that is, is, is like, okay, we hear you now be quiet. It's a subtle passive aggressive way to try and silence someone's emotion because it makes you uncomfortable because it's challenging. But the thing is, it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to feel deeply challenged throughout this process, however long it takes, maybe always, I don't know, maybe forever. And so I think it's important to find a way to bear witness to all the pain that's coming up for black people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as therapists, we work really hard to be able to bear witness to people's experience. And that's not easy, right? Like I think a lot of us right. find lots of joy in that and count it as a privilege and an honor, but it's hard to look at people when they're in lots of pain. Yes. It is hard to sit in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so much of what we're trained to do is to just sit in it. <laughs> right? Yes. To help people know that it's okay to really hurt a lot and to know that we have the capacity to hold within us really big feelings. But most people, you know, want us to just tuck that away. I think so much of what we are all doing and continuing to post and to share our personal experiences is to resist that pressure to tuck it all away again. Yeah. To shrink again. Yeah, to shrink again because it needs to be seen. Yes. It deserves to be seen. It does. Well, let's talk about um, your experience. And, you know, since we were talking about being a therapist in particular and creating space for for all of the valid feelings, the skepticism, the anger um, that we're rightfully hearing and can you tell me more or all of us more about your experience of the mental health world as a black female therapist? And, and I would love to hear too, as, as someone who came into this, you know, after 10 years in PR, you know, which is a really unique also perspective, what would you say in mental health you've been encouraged by or really discouraged by like when we're seeing mental health practitioners saying, you know, love, not anger. Um, you know, what, what would you say has been some of your, I know it's a big question, but what has been some of your experience? I think 
it's not that different um, than my experience in corporate America, which is to say that um, I've had to really advocate for myself and for the equity of my clients' experiences because the systems that surround us, the systems that we interact with on a daily basis, by and large, are not for us. And so I experience that as a professional in corporate America. Um, the difference is, and what I feel really encouraged by, is that there is a really um, wonderful community of Black mental health professionals that is really um, open and welcoming and supportive and encouraging. And so it's helpful to know that there are people all over the world who are, you know, fighting and advocating for our experiences in the same way that I'm trying to do on a really small level for myself and for my clients. And so I'm encouraged by that. I'm refreshed by that. But I think, you know, the other thing that's changed for me is that as a therapist, and we talked about how we bring our whole selves to this work, yeah. I feel much more confident in speaking up for myself and speaking up for my clients, right? Like where I felt really um, intimidated in corporate America, I don't feel that same sense of intimidation as a therapist. I think, um, like I said, I know, I know that I'm supposed to be here. I know that um, this, is, this is the work that I'm called to and that my clients um, always need an advocate, you know? And so I'm always thinking about how can I be a bridge for them? How can I help them to feel heard and represented and to make sure they have um, the knowledge they need, the tools they need, the support they need? That really is as much a part of my job as it is to sit with them one-on-one and to, to process hard things, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And that takes us to this idea of healing away from a system um, that is peddled a lot. And, you know, I'm, I'm still like, I'm about a year into Instagram and it's a whole <laughs> world. I mean, yeah. Um, and as a therapist, I, you know, it's an interesting world. Um, but a lot of white writer therapists have been called out rightly so for kind of peddling this myth of self-healing, yeah. um, away from a system. And you, you were already saying that, you know, part of being a therapist is not just holding space, but is recognizing and helping to address the systemic racism or the, you know, that, that your clients are facing every day. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about this sort of, this myth of, you know, self-healing away from your context. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't I like it at all. It doesn't, it doesn't fit for me. Um, for many reasons. And I think one of them is that, you know, I really do think that we heal and grow and change in relationships and, and community. And so um, that doesn't fit for me personally, although I acknowledge that there are lots of different ways to heal. But sure. one of the other things that I will say is that, you know, we as mental health clinicians cannot be ignorant of all the things that impact our clients' lives. It's just not fair. It's not fair. It's not good um, care. Right. And so, 
one of the things that black people know that, that I wish more people knew is that we can do our very best. We can excel in every way and still not have equitable experiences, right? So what does it say as a mental health professional, a person who is deemed an expert mm-hmm. to say or to imply that the ways that we are oppressed are essentially our own doing to not acknowledge the impact of these systems that we we work already so hard to fight against so we have to really acknowledge how that shapes each individual and i you know i keep bringing this back to myself cuz i don't want to talk for for all black people but i'll say right. When we talk about the ways that oppression shows up for us on an individual level, I think about, you know, how I struggle with perfectionism. And I have really had to examine, is that because of my personality and my own insecurities? Or is that because as a Black woman in America, I don't feel like I have any room to make mistakes and recover? Is it because I've learned that I have to be as close to perfect as I can to be valued and seen as competent and worthy of opportunities. Mm. And so I think, you know, we have to acknowledge as mental health professionals that there is inherent trauma in identifying with a marginalized group. Absolutely. And so, you know, we have to hold space to really unpack and understand the ways our experiences with racism and discrimination have shaped us personally and our relationships and our families and our worldview. And, and I don't like the self-healing idea. I just, it just doesn't fit for me and it's not fair for um, marginalized people. It's just not. No, it just, it's like um, trying to heal in a little bubble that doesn't actually exist. Right. The bubble doesn't exist. And I think about um, the way you described these, you know, the relational oppression, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, the, the everyday moments too, right? That from when you're a little girl through a professional, successful working adult, these constant, you know, microaggressions. And so to say, believe in yourself. And if you don't have confidence, it's just you. It feels completely devoid of any context. Yeah. And I think, you know, it also goes back to what we were talking about in terms of safe spaces, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like environment is a really important part of healing. Yes, it is. Yeah. I did a portion of my clinical training in a residential treatment center for people with substance use. And in residential treatment, one of my biggest priorities was um, making sure that the men I was working with knew I was a safe person and making sure that the environment felt safe and like a space where they could heal, right? So when we're talking about self-healing away from a system, you're not even in the right environment to allow healing to occur. Like if you were to, you know, get a wound, like a physical wound, right? We do everything to make the environment right for healing. You're right. Mm -hmm. You know, we cover it. We put some kind of balm on it. We bandage it, right? We protect it. And if those things don't happen. The wound stays raw and open. That's where we are now. It's such a powerful metaphor and picture. I see it. Yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't fit. And I think a lot of damage can be done in 
making people to feel more shame around why they're not excelling or why they're not healing or why they're not, you know, doing things they want to do. We have to acknowledge the impact of, of these systems and um, our society on our mental health. I really could keep talking to you all day. I <laughs> want to be mindful of your time. And um, we have a few more questions I wanted to get to, but I'm wondering if before we do, if we could name what safety is, you know, making a safe space for people. And I don't mean, you know, obviously this is a huge um, topic, but, but as a mental health professional, you know, before we move on to our other um, questions and our final question, you know, safety involves curiosity, a lack of defensiveness. What, what would you, what would you define as, as safety in relate in relationship? Yeah. Um, I would say a space that's free of judgment. Mm, yeah. A sense of compassion and empathy. Um, you said curiosity, which I think is so important. A space where you are able to be the expert on your own life and your own experiences. And a space where I don't have to perform for you to see my inherent value as a human being where I don't have to walk in and be anything other than Tiffany, not Tiffany, the therapist, not Tiffany, the wife, not Tiffany, you know, the graduate. No, just, just me. And honestly, you know, I think it's the things that we all want in any relationship. Think about what allows you to grow into a relationship and to continue to bring more and more of yourself. Mm -hmm. Those are the conditions where you drop your defenses where you are curious and interested. I think interest is such a huge part of safety for me. You know, do you want to learn about me as a person? Makes so much sense. Yes. I'm sure there's more, but I mean, those are immediate things that I think yeah, about. That's yeah. I mean, those are so powerful. And, you know, as therapists, we're trained to let people be experts. Mm -hmm. if, if we're listening to our training, yeah. Um, you know, let them be the experts on their own experience. And I think that's one of the things that's so shocking to see is when people are trying to talk other people out of their own experience. Right. It's just absurd. It is know? absurd. Like, how do you like, know well, more about me than me? <laughs> exactly. And, and how do you as a white person know more about being a black person in the United States than the person, the black person who's sharing their experience? I'd, right. Yeah. Right. It's Yeah. Okay, well, we have a few more questions that we talked about. Um, and, you know, one is this idea of rest um, as self-care. And, and I've, I've seen it written so many places. So I can't, I don't have someone to attribute it to, um, you know, or, but I would uh, rest as a form of resistance. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on this as, um, as, well, as a person, but also as a therapist and, and what you might add to rest? You know, I think um, rest is so important and it can also be such a struggle if and when we're socialized to be uber productive at all times, right? To always be connected, to always be doing more. Um, but I think, you know, rest really helps us to reaffirm our humanity, mm. to know that we are not machines, that we need space and time to just be, you know, to remember that we are worthy just because we are, just as we are, because we're human. 
not because we're successful or productive or interesting. And, you know, I think when we deal with trauma and, and as we've been talking a lot about racial trauma and the way that um, there's a term that, that is used to describe, you know, the ongoing impact of racial trauma and it's racial battle fatigue. And so I think when we start to think about rest, it can take a lot of time to really settle into letting that pressure fall away, the pressure of trying to prove ourselves and trying to perform and trying to, you know, be seen as worthy because the world tells us we're not. But, you know, we can't heal without rest. And we can't reclaim our identity, our true self, without learning who we are in the absence of all the things we've had to do and be for other people. And so I think rest is really important. I think joy is really important, you know, Um, in this time that's been so difficult. um, I've also had, you know, some really joyful moments where Mm -hmm. (laughs) just, just laughing and you know, there have been some things I've seen online that have brought me to te- like happy tears, you yeah. know, uh-huh, uh-huh. and I think I, I want to also acknowledge that as as tough of a time as we're all having as black people, I also think we're really a joyful people. Um, we're a really resilient people. And, you know, I think most of us love being black people, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's important to note that as well, that like joy and the sense of community and shared experience is a big part of what helps us keep going. Well, one of the things that you um, have written that I loved so much, and I've told you this, is you wrote, your healing may be disruptive. Heal anyway. And before we get to our final question, I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on that powerful idea. Yeah, you know, um, I think sometimes change can be as painful as it is rewarding. Mm, yes. And I think at times the things that we want to heal from and grow through are the very things that keep us connected to people we love. And so healing is not only disruptive to us as individuals, but to all the people we're connected to. And one of the things that I talk with clients about as we kind of start you know, our process is people always come back and say, but they will get mad, right? The, the infamous days in our life. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. They will get mad. And I always say they will. They will get mad. And in order to remain engaged in the process, we have to be willing to um, shake things up for our, you know, shaking things up. And I talked about this and I talked about my own journey. Shaking things up for ourselves shakes things up for everyone that we're connected to. And so it can feel like a really risky process because we have to be willing to renegotiate our roles and our relationships. And it's not something that we can engineer from A to Z and anticipate how things are going to change for us. You're right. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't always work how we think it will. It will. So I think we have to be okay with a process that is more disruptive than we can anticipate and knowing that Things will change. We will change. People in our lives will change. And some relationships may not make it, you know? And I think there's often a lot of grief and healing, right? Like we have to let go of the parts of ourselves that were adaptive at one time, but no longer serve us. And that often includes relationship changes. So I think one of the things that I really work with 
clients on and even like continue to coach myself around is that things change, relationships change, and my healing is still worth it. Well, last question um, that I ask everyone at the end of each interview, what's um, a person or event or thing that helped you become who you are today? That the Tiffany that we're getting to speak with today, what helped you become who you are? I love this question. I feel like it could be a whole podcast. Maybe yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could do, do that someday. <laughs> yeah, I love um, that idea. But, you know, I think my process of becoming a therapist has really helped me become and is helping me to continue to become. I think it's been an incredibly restorative journey for me. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to share the whole story um, yeah. that I don't always share. But you know, I came in with so much self-doubt and um, we talked about shrinking. And I, I feel like in so much of my life, I just was living a version of me that wasn't full and true. Mm. And so in this process, I've been so affirmed and so supported by many people um, that I really feel like I owe a debt of gratitude to from peers and my program to a handful of professors who really pointed out strengths they saw in me and offered me really incredible opportunities um, and just saw me in a way that offered a lot of healing and helped me to see myself differently and to really believe in my ability to do this work. Um, I also had a clinical supervisor who impacted me really deeply in my training. And I think one of the most powerful things she did for me was just to be fully present consistently. Um, she offered me her presence in a way that really shook me to my core because it, you know, sadly, it's becoming a rare experience to just be present fully with another person. And so that was a deeply healing experience for me. And it changed the way that I think about what it means to show up for my clients and for my loved ones. You know, she just always showed up and was with me fully and completely. And when I think about that experience, it always makes me emotional because I think we always think about all the things we need to do, right, to have successful interactions. Mm -hmm. And what I learned in that experience is that the most important and powerful thing we can do is just be present, fully present. You know, we've talked a lot about, you know, safety and that consistency and that presence offered me a really important sense of safety that I'd never had in a professional setting before. And it allowed me to expand in my process of learning and growth. So that shaped me forever. And I, I will always carry that forward. It's so powerful how um, a relationship can harm mm -hmm. or can, can help us expand. Absolutely. Um, it's such a powerful story. Tiffany, thank you so much um, just for taking the time, um, for sharing the long version <laughs> of your story. Um, it's just been a joy and an honor, you know, to get to know you. I, I have loved getting to know you in every way that we have already connected, but this has just been an absolute joy um, to hear your story. And I'm really honored that um, we could have this conversation today and have this time together. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really grateful um, to have been able to share 
and to talk with you. And again, like I'm a huge fan of all that you do. So it's, it's been my honor and my pleasure. Thank you. Same here. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tiffany as much as I did. And I hope that you felt your own story would have safety to be heard as you heard Tiffany share about her story. I hope that we created a safe space for not only Tiffany's story and her wisdom and her insight, but also for yours. Or if your story doesn't look anything like Tiffany's, I hope that you learned by making space and sitting with someone else's story. For more about Tiffany and where to find her, we'll have everything linked in the show notes. For more information, please go to stillbecoming.net. Please subscribe and review Still Becoming wherever you listen to podcasts if you like what you heard here today. Please follow along on Instagram. You can find me at Monica DeCristina. Thank you for listening. Thank you.